Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat, the classic story from Edna Ferber that inspired one of the greatest American musicals. This is the eighth book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads, featuring the acclaimed Canadian actress, artist, television, and radio host, Marilyn Lightstone. You can find the entire series online at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads Edna Ferber's Showboat. Chapter 13 The most casual onlooker could gauge the fluctuations of the Ravenal fortunes by any one of three signs. There was Magnolia Ravenal's sealskin sack. There was Magnolia Ravenal's diamond ring. There was Gaylord Ravenal's Malacca cane. Any or all of these had a way of vanishing and reappearing in a manner that would have been baffling to one not an habitué of South Clark Street, Chicago. Of the three, the Malacca stick, though of almost no tangible value, disappeared first and oftenest, for it came to be recognized as an I.O.U. by every reputable Clark Street pawnbroker. Deep in a losing game of faro a Jeff Hankins or Mike McDonald's, Ravenal would summon a boy to him. He would hand him the little ivory-topped cane. Here, take this down to Abe Lipman's corner Clark and Monroe. "'Tell him I want two hundred dollars. And hurry. "'Or run over to Goldsmith's with this. Tell him a hundred. "'The boy would understand. "'In ten minutes he would return minus the stick "'and bearing a wilted sheaf of ten-dollar bills. "'If Ravenal's luck turned, the cane was redeemed. "'If it still stayed stubborn, the diamond ring must go. "'That failing, then the sealskin sack.' Revenal, contrary to the custom of his confrères, wore no jewellery, possessed none. There were certain sinister aspects of these outward signs, as when, for example, the reigning sealskin sack was known to skip an entire winter. Perhaps none of these three symbols was as significant a betrayal of the Ravenal finances as was gay Ravenal's choice of a breakfasting place. He almost never breakfasted at home. This was a reversion to one of the habits of his bachelor days, was, doubtless, a tardy rebellion, too, against the years spent under Mrs. Hawke's harsh regime. He always had hated those cotton-blossom nine-o'clock family breakfasts, ominously presided over by Parthy and Cap and Curl Papers. Since their coming to Chicago, Gay liked to breakfast between eleven and twelve, and certainly never rose before ten. If the Ravenel luck was high, the meal was eaten in leisurely luxury at Billy Boyle's chop house between Clark and Dearborn Streets. This was most agreeable, for at Billy Boyle's, during the noon hour, you encountered Chicago's sporting blood. Political overlords, gamblers, jockeys, actors, reporters— these last mere nobodies, lean and somewhat morose young fellows, vaguely known as George Aide, Brand Whitlock, John McCutcheon, Pete Dunn. Here the news and gossip of the day went round. Here you saw the Prince Albert coat, the silk hat, the rattling cuffs, the glittering collar, the diamond stud of the professional gamester. Old Carter Harrison, mayor of Chicago, would drop in daily, 
a good twenty-five cent cigar waggling between his lips as he greeted this friend and that. In came the brokers from the board of trade across the way. Smoke blew air. The rich, heavy smell of thick steaks cut from prime western beef. Massive glasses of beer through which shone the pale amber of light brew or the seal brown of dark. The scent of strong black coffee. Rye bread pungent with caraway. Little crisp round breakfast rolls sprinkled with poppy seed. Calories, high blood pressure, vegetable luncheons, golf, were words not yet included in the American everyday vocabulary. Fried potatoes were still considered a breakfast dish, and a meatless meal was a snack. Here it was, then, that gay Ravenel, slim, pale, quiet, elegant, liked best to begin his day, listening charmingly and attentively to the talk that swirled about him, talk of yesterday's lucky winners in Gambler's Alley, at Prince Varnell's place, or Jeff Hankins, or Mike McDonald's, of the Washington Park racetrack entries, of the new blonde girl at Hetty Chilson's, of politics in their simplest terms. Occasionally he took part in this talk, but like most professional gamblers, his was not the conversational gift. He was given credit for the astuteness he did not possess merely on the strength of his cool, evasive glance, his habit of listening and saying little, and his bland poker face. Ravenall doesn't say much, but there's damn little he misses. Watch him an hour straight, and you can't make out from his face whether he's cleaning up a thousand or losing his shirt. An enviable Clark Street reputation. Still, this availed him nothing when funds were low. At such times, he eschewed Billy Boyles and breakfasted meagerly instead at the cockeyed bakery just east of Clark. That famous refuge for the temporarily insolvent was so named because of the optical peculiarity of the lady who owned it and who dispensed its coffee and sinkers. This refreshment cost ten cents. The coffee was hot, strong, revivifying, the sinkers crisp and fresh. Every Clark Street gambler was, at one time or another, through the vagaries of Lady Luck, to be found moodily munching the plain fare that made up the limited menu to be had at the cockeyed bakery. For that matter, lacking even the modest sum required for this sustenance, he knew that there he would be allowed to throw up a tab until luck should turn. Many a morning, Gaylord Ravenel, dapper, nonchalant, sartorially exquisite, fared forth at eleven with but fifty cents in the pocket of his excellently tailored pants. Usually, on these occasions, the Malacca stick was significantly absent. Of the fifty cents, ten went for the glassy shoeshine, twenty-five for a boutonniere, ten for coffee and sinkers at the cockeyed bakery. The remaining five cents stayed in his pocket as a sop to the superstition that no coin breeds no more coins. Stopping first to look in a moment at Weeping Willie Mangler's, or at Riley's pool room for a glance at the racing chart, or to hear a bit of the talk missed through his enforced absence from Boyle's, he would end at Hankins or McDonald's, there to woo fortune with nothing at all to offer as oblation. 
but affairs did not reach this pass until after the first year. It was incredible that Magnolia Ravenel could so soon have adapted herself to the life in which she now moved. Yet it was explicable, perhaps, when one took into consideration her inclusive nature. She was interested, alert, eager, and still in love with Gaylord Ravenel. Her life on the rivers had accustomed her to all that was bizarre in humanity. Queenie and Joe had been as much part of her existence as Ellie and Schultze, the housewives in the little towns, the men lounging on the wharves, the gamblers in the riverfront saloons, the miners of the coal belt, the northern fruit pickers, the boatmen, the southern poor whites, the Louisiana aristocracy, all had passed in fantastic parade before her ambient eyes. And she too had marched in a parade, a figure as gorgeous, as colorful as the rest. Now, in this new life, she accepted everything, enjoyed everything, with a naivete that was perhaps her greatest charm. It was, doubtless, the thing that held the roving Ravenel to her. Nothing shocked her. This was her singularly pure and open mind. She brought to this new life an interest and a curiosity as fresh as that which had characterized the little girl who had so eagerly and companionably sat with Mr. Pepper, the pilot, in the bright, cozy, glass-enclosed pilot house atop the old Creole Bell on that first enchanting trip down the Mississippi to New Orleans. To him she had said, "'What's around that bend?' Now what's coming? Oh, how deep is it here? What used to be there? What island is that? Mr. Pepper, the pilot, had answered her questions amply, and with a feeling of satisfaction to himself as he beheld her childish hunger for knowledge being appeased. Now she said to her husband, with equal eagerness, Who is that stout woman with the pretty yellow-haired girl? Oh, what queer eyes they have! What does it mean when it says, odd are two to one? Or why do they call him Bathhouse John? Who is that large woman in the Victoria with the lovely sunshade? How rich her dress is, yet it's plain. Why don't you introduce me to... Oh, oh, that, Hetty Chilson. Oh, why do they call him Bad Jimmy Connerton? Why do they call it the levee? It's really Clark Street, and no water anywhere near. So why do they call it the levee? What's a percentage game? Hieronymus? <laughs> what a funny word. Mike MacDonald. That? Why, he looks like a farmer, doesn't he? A farmer in his Sunday best black clothes that don't fit him. The boss of the gamblers? Why do they call this place the store? Oh, Kate, darling, I wish you wouldn't. Now, don't frown like that. I just mean I... Well, when I think of Kim, I get scared because... Well, how about Kim? I, I mean, I mean, when she grows up. Why are they called owl cars? But I don't understand why Lipman lets you have money just for a cane that isn't worth more than ten or twenty. How do pawnbrokers... Montanus? What a queer name. Al Hankins? Oh, you're joking now. Really killed by having a folding bed close up on him? Oh, oh, never again, Stephen. Boiler Avenue? 
Hooley's Theatre? Chinqua Valley? Fanny Davenport? Darby Day? Weber and Fields? Sauterne? Rectors? Quite another world about which to be curious. A world assorted and colourful and crude and passionate and cruel and rich and varied as that other had been. It had taken Ravenel little more than a year to dissipate the tidy fortune which had been Magnolia's share of Captain Andy's estate, including the cotton blossom interest. He had, of course, meant to double the sum, to multiply it many times, so that the plump thousands should increase to tens, to hundreds of thousands. Once you had money, a really respectable amount of it, it was simple enough to manipulate that money so as to make it magically produce more and more money. They had made straight for Chicago, at that period the gambler's paradise. When Ravenel announced this step, a little look of panic had come into Magnolia's eyes. She was reluctant to demur at his plans. It was the thing her mother always had done when her father had proposed a new move. Always, Captain Andy's enthusiasm had suffered the cold douche of Parthy's disapproval. At the prospect of Chicago, the old haunts, congenial companions, the restaurants, the theatres, the races, Ravenel had been more elated than she had ever seen him. He had become almost loquacious, he could even be charming to Mrs. Hawkes, now that he was so nearly free of her. That iron woman had regarded him as her enemy to the last, and in making over to Magnolia the goodish sum of money which was due her had uttered dire predictions, all of which promptly came true. That first year in Chicago was a picture so kaleidoscopic, so extravagant, so ridiculous, that even the child Kim retained in her memory's eye something of its color and pageantry. This father and mother in their twenties seemed really little older than their child. Certainly there was something pathetically childish in their evident belief that they could at once spend their money and keep it intact. Just a fur coat. What was that? Bonnets. A smart high yellow trap. Horses. The races. Suppers. A nursemaid for Kim. Magnolia knew nothing of money. She never had had any. On the cotton blossom, money was a commodity of which one had little need. On coming to Chicago, they had gone directly to the Sherman House. Compared with this, that first visit to Chicago before Kim's birth had been a mere picnic jaunt. Ravenel was proud of his young wife and of his quiet, grave, big-eyed child, of the nursemaid in a smart uniform, of the pair of English hackneys which he sometimes allowed Magnolia to drive to her exquisite delight. Magnolia had her first real evening dress, cut décolleté, "'Tasted champagne, went to the races at the Washington Park racetrack, "'sat in a box at Hooley's, "'was horrified at witnessing the hoochie-coochie dance "'on the midway places at the World's Fair. "'The first fur coat was worthy of note. "'The wives of the well-to-do wore sealskin sacks "'as proof of their husband's prosperity. "'Magnolia descended to these later.' 
But the pelts which warmed her during that first winter of Chicago lake blasts and numbing cold had been cunningly matched in Paris, and French fingers had fashioned them into a wrap. Ravenel had selected it for her, of course. He always accompanied her on her shopping trips. He liked to loll elegantly at ease like a pasha, while the keen-eyed saleswomen brought out this gown and that for his expert inspection. To these alert ladies, it was plain to see that Magnolia knew little enough about chic attire. The gentleman, though, he knew what was what. Magnolia had been aghast at the cost of that first fur coat. But then, how should she know of such things? Between them, she and Parthy had made most of the costumes she had worn in her cotton blossom days, both for stage and private use. The new coat was a black astrakhan jacket. The fur lay in large, smooth waves known as baby lamb. Magnolia said it made her feel like a cannibal to wear a thing like that. The sales ladies did not smile at this, but that was all right because Magnolia had not intended that they should. The reavers and cuffs were of Russian sable, dark and rich and deep, and it had large mutton-leg sleeves, large enough to contain her dress sleeves comfortably, with a little expert aid in the way of stuffing. "'Stuff my sleeves in!' was one of the directions always given a gentleman when he assisted a lady with her wrap. This royal garment had cost... Oh, gay! Magnolia had protested in a low, shocked voice, but not so low that the sharp-eared saleswoman failed to hear it. Okay, I honestly don't think we ought... Mrs. Potter Palmer, spoke up the chief saleswoman in a voice at once sharp and suave, has a coat identically similar. They are the only two of the kind in the whole country. To tell you the truth, I think the sable skins on this garment of Madame's are just a little finer than Mrs. Palmer's, though perhaps it's just that Madame sets it off better, being so young and all. He liked her to wear, nestling in the rich depths of the sable reavers, a bunch of violets. For the theatre, she had one of those new winged bonnets, representing a butterfly, cunningly contrived of mousseline de soie, wired and brilliantly spangled, so that it quivered and trembled with the movements of her head, and sparkled enchantingly. Kim adored the smell of the violet-scented creature who kissed her goodnight and swept out, glittering. The impression must have gone deep, deep into the childish mind, for twenty years later she still retained a sort of storybook mental picture of this black-haired, creamy mother who would come in late of a winter afternoon, laughing and bright-eyed, after a drive up Grand Boulevard in the sleigh behind the swift English hackneys. This vision would seem to fill the warm room with a delightful mixture of violets and fur and cold fresh air and velvet and spangles and love and laughter. Kim would plunge her face deep into the soft-scented bosom. Okay, do see how she loves the violets. You won't mind if I take them off and put them here in this glass so she... Oh, no, 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 you mustn't buy me any fresh ones, please. I wish she didn't look quite so much like me. Her mouth. Oh, but it's going to be a great wide one like mine. 
Oh, Bernhardt. Who wants her little girl to look like Bernhardt? Besides, Kim isn't going to be an actress. At the end of a year or so of this, the money was gone. Simply gone. Of course, it hadn't been only the hackneys and the races and the trap and the furs and the suppers and the theatres and dresses and gays' fine garments and the nurse and the hotel. For, as Ravenel explained, the hackneys hadn't even been pure-blooded, which would have brought them up to one thousand each. He had never been really happy about them because of a slight blot on their family escutcheon which had brought them down to a mere six hundred apiece. This flaw was apparent, surely, to no one who was not an accredited judge at a horse show. Yet when Ravenel and Magnolia on Derby Day joined the gay stream of tallyhoes, wagonettes, coaches, phaetons, tandems, cocking carts, and dog carts sweeping up Michigan Avenue and Grand Boulevard toward the Washington Park racetrack, he was likely to fall into one of his moody silences and to flick the hackneys with little contemptuous cuts of the long, lithe whip in a way that only they and Magnolia understood. On such occasions, he called them nags. Ah, that off-nag broke again. That's because they're not thoroughbreds. Oh, but Gay, you're hurting their mouths sewing like that. Please, Magnolia, this isn't a Mississippi barge I'm driving. She learned many things that first year, and saw so much that part of what she saw was mercifully soon forgotten. You said, Darby Day, very English. You pretended not to mind when your husband went down to speak to Hetty Chilson and her girls in their box. For that matter, you pretended not to see Hetty Chilson and her girls at all, though they had driven out in a sort of private procession of Victorias, Landau's, Browns, and were by far the best-dressed women at the races. They actually set the styles, Gay had told her. Hetty Chilson's girls wore rich, quiet, almost sedate clothes, and no paint on their faces. They seemed an accepted part of the world in which Gaylord Ravenel moved. Even in the rough life of the rivers, Magnolia had always understood that women of Hetty Chilson's calling simply did not exist in the public sense. They were not of the substance of everyday life, but were shadows, sinister, menacing, evil. But with this new life of Magnolia's came the startling knowledge that these ladies played an important part in the social and political life of this huge, sprawling Midwestern city. This stout, blonde, rather handsome woman, who carried herself with an air of prosperous assurance, whose shrewd, keen glance and hearty laugh rather attracted you. This one was Hetty Chilson. The horsewomen you saw riding in the Lincoln Park bridle path, handsomely habited in black, close-fitting riding clothes, were, likely as not, Hetty Chilson's girls. She was actually a power in her way. When strangers were shown places of interest in Chicago, the Potter Palmer Castle on Lakeshore Drive, the art museum, the stockyards, the auditorium hotel, the great mansions of Phil Armour and his son on Michigan Avenue, with the garden embracing an entire city block. Hetty Chilson's place, too, was pointed out, 
with a lowering of the voice, of course, and a little leer, and perhaps an elbow dug into the ribs. A substantial brick house on Clark Street, near Polk, with two lions carved in stone, absurdly guarding its profane portals. Hetty Chilson's place, Gay explained to his wide-eyed young wife, is like a club. You're likely to find every prominent politician in Chicago there, smoking and having a sociable drink. And half the political plots that you read about in the newspapers later are hatched at Hetty's. She's as smart as they make them. Bought a farm, 15 acres, out at 90th and State for her father and mother. And she's got a country place out on the Kanakee River near Moments, about 60 miles south of here, that's known to have one of the finest libraries in the country. Cervantes, Balzac, rare editions, stable full of horses, rose garden. But gay, dear... You saw Hetty driving down State Street during the shopping hour in her Kimball-made Victoria, an equipage such as royalty might have used, its ebony body fashioned by master craftsmen, its enamel as rich and deep and shining as a piano top. Her ample skirts would be spread upon the plum-colored cushions. If it was summer, the lace ruffles of her sunshade would plume gently in the breeze. In winter, her mink coat swathed her full, firm figure. One of her girls sat beside her, faultlessly dressed, pale, unvivacious. Two men in livery on the box. Harness that shone with polished metal and jingled splendidly. Two slim, quivering, high-stepping chestnuts. Queen of her world. Chicago's underworld. But, but gay, dear. Well... How about France? France? Well, how about the women you used to read about? Learned about them in your history books, for that matter, at school. Pompadour and Maintenon and Dubarry. Didn't they mix up in the politics of their day? And weren't they recognized? Courtesans, every one of them. You think just because they wore white wigs and flowered silk hoops and patches... A little unaccustomed flush surged over Magnolia's pallor. The deep almost painful red of indignation. She was an inexperienced woman, but she was no fool. These last few months had taught her many things. Also, the teachings of her schoolteacher mother had not, after all, been quite forgotten, it appeared. She's a common woman of the town, Gaylord Ravenel. All the wigs and patches and silks in the world wouldn't make her anything else. She's no more a Dubarry than your 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 Hinky Dink is a, a a Mazarin. It was as though he took a sort of perverse pleasure in thus startling her. It wasn't that she was shocked in the prim sense of the word. She was bewildered and a little frightened. At such times, the austere form and the grim visage of Parthenia and Hawks would rise up before her puzzled eyes. What would Parthy have said of these unsavoring figures now passing in parade before Magnolia's confused vision? Hetty Chilson, Doc Haggerty, Mike MacDonald, Prince Varnell, Effie Hawkins. Uneasy though she was, Magnolia could manage to smile at the thought of her mother's verbal destruction of this roughish crew. 
There were no half-tones in Parthi's vocabulary. A hussy was a hussy, a rake a rake. But her father, she thought, would have been interested in all this, and more than a little amused. His bright brown eyes would have missed nothing. The little nimble figure would have scampered inquisitively up and down the narrow and somewhat sinister lane that lay between Washington and Madison Streets, known as Gambler's Alley. He would have taken a turn at Faro, appraised the levee ladies at their worth, visited Sam T. Jack's burlesque show over on Madison, and Cole and Middleton's museum, probably, and Hooley's theatre, certainly. Nothing in Chicago's levee life would have escaped little Captain Andy, and nothing would have changed him. See it all, Nolly, he had said to her in the old Cotton Blossom days, when Parthy would object to their taking this or that jaunt ashore between shows. Don't you believe him when they say that what you don't know won't hurt you? Biggest lie ever was. See it all and go your own way and nothing'll hurt you. If what you see ain't pretty, what's the odds? See it anyway. The next time, you don't have to look. Magnolia, gazing about her, decided that she was seeing it all. The bulk of the money had gone at Faro. The suckers played roulette, stud poker, hazard, the birdcage, chuck-a-luck, the old army game. But your gambler played Faro. Farrow was Gaylord Ravenel's game, and he played at Hankins. Not a George Hankins, where they catered to the cheap trade who played percentage games, but a Jeff Hankins, or Mike McDonald's, where were found the highest stakes in Chicago. Farrow was not a game with Ravenel. It was for him at once his profession, his science, his drug, his drink, his mistress. He had, unhappily, as was so often the case with your confirmed gambler, no other vice. He rarely drank, and then, abstemiously, smoked little, and then a mild cigar, ate sparingly and fastidiously, eschewed even the diamond ring and shirt-stud of his kind. The two did not, of course, watch the money go, or despair because it would soon be gone. There seemed to be plenty of it. There always would be enough— Next week, they would invest it securely. Ravenel had inside tips on the market. He had heard of a good thing. This was not the right time, but they would let him know when the magic moment was at hand. In the meantime, there was Faro, and there were the luxurious hotel rooms with their soft, thick carpets and their big, comfortable beds, ice water tinkling at the door in answer to your ring, special dishes to tempt the taste of Mr. Ravenel and his lady, the sharp-eyed gentleman in evening clothes who stood near the little ticket box as you entered the theater said, "'Good evening, Mr. Ravenel,' when they went to Hooley's or McVicker's or the Grand Opera House or Coles and Castle's. The heads of departments in Mundell's or Carson Peary's or even Marshall Field said, I have something rather special to show you, Mrs. Ravenel. I thought of you the minute it came in. Sometimes it seemed to Magnolia that the cotton blossom had been only a phantom ship, the river's dream, a legend. It was all very pleasant and luxurious and strange, 
and Magnolia tried not to mind the clang of Clark Street by day and by night. The hideous cacophony of noise invaded their hotel apartment and filled its every corner. She wondered why the streetcar motormen jangled their warning bells so persistently. Did they do it as an antidote to relieve their own jangled nerves? Papers! Morning papers! Crack! 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 The shooting gallery across the street. Someone passing the bedroom door, walking heavily and clanking the metal disc of his room key. The sound of voices, laughter from the street, and the unceasing shuffle of footsteps on stone. Whee! Whoopa! Yow! A drunkard. She knew about that, too. Part of her recently acquired knowledge. Ravenall had told her about Big Steve Rowan, the 300-pound policeman who, partly because of his goatee and moustache, and partly because of his expert manipulation of his official weapon, was called the Jack of Clubs. You'll never see Big Steve arrest a drunk at night, Kate explained to her, laughing. <laughs> no, sir, nor any other Clark Street cop, if he can help it. If they arrest a man, they have to appear against him next morning at the nine o'clock police court. That means getting up early. So, if he's able to navigate at all, they pass him on down the street from corner to corner till they get him headed west somewhere, or north across the bridge. <laughs> Great system. All this was amusing and colorful, perhaps, but scarcely conducive to tranquility and repose. Often Magnolia lying awake by the side of the sleeping man, or lying awake awaiting his late return, would close her stinging eyelids, the better to visualize and sense the deep velvet silence of the rivers of her girlhood, the black velvet nights. Quiet, quiet, the lisping cluck-suck of the water against the hull. Clang! Morning papers! Crack! Yow! And then suddenly one day, But Gay, dear, how do you mean we haven't one hundred dollars? It's for that bronze green velvet that you like so much, though I always think it makes me look sallow. But you did urge me to get it, you know, dear. And now this is the third time they've sent the bill, so so if you'll give me the money, or, or write a check, if you'd rather. I tell you I haven't got it, Nola. Oh, oh well, well, tomorrow will do, but please be sure tomorrow, because I hate... I can't be sure tomorrow than I am today. I haven't got a hundred dollars in the world, and that's a fact. Even after he had finished explaining, she did not understand, could not believe it, continued to stare at him with those great, dark, startled eyes. Bad luck? At what? Pharaoh, but... Okay. Thousands? Well, thousands don't last forever. Took a flyer. Flyer? Yes, a tip on the market. Market? The stock market. Stock? Oh, <laughs> you wouldn't understand. But, but all of it gay? Well, some of it lost at Faro. Where? Hankins. How much? What does it matter? It's gone. But gay. How much at Faro? Oh, a few thousands? Five? Yes, 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 five. More than that? Well, 
Well, nearer ten, probably. She noticed then that the Malacca cane was gone. She slipped her diamond ring off her finger, gave it to him. With the years, that became an automatic gesture. Thus, the change in their mode of living did not come about gradually. They were wafted with Cinderella-like celerity from the coach and four to the kitchen ashes. They left the plush and ice water and fresh linen and rich food and luxurious service of the Sherman House for a grubby little family hotel that was really a sort of actor's boarding house on the north side, just across the Clark Street Bridge on Ontario Street. It was, Ravenel said, within convenient walking distance of places. What places? Magnolia asked. But she knew. A ten-minute saunter brought you to Gambler's Alley. In the next fifteen years, there was never a morning when Gaylord Ravenel failed to prove this interesting geographical fact. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the eighth book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast series. Other readings include Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.